This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. that have changed the world and can change even us. And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our third episode featuring the great Dr. Elie Wiesel and his Holocaust memoir, Night. Uh, in episode one, we discussed Wiesel's life story spanning the many years of his life before, but then also after the Holocaust. And we highlighted the impact this man has had on planet Earth as an advocate for peace. He stands out among the greatest advocates for peace in the 20th century, which also has happened to have been our most genocidal century in the history of our planet. And uh, he spoke of the necessity of man as a matter of survival to forgive, to seek morality and ethical values, and to honor the sanctity of human life and pursue the wisdom to distinguish between evil, revenge, and justice. That's a lot. Well, it is a lot. And last week we went back in time to Siget or Sayet and listened to little Ellie as he introduced to us his friend Moshe the Beetle, his family, his world. And we watched his world shrink smaller and smaller until he and his family were confined into a cattle car where they ironically longed they couldn't wait to reach their final destination, which was the ultimate situational irony because the place that they longed to reach carried the name of Auschwitz, a place they had never heard of, but a place the world must never forget. Gary, this story is just infinitely sad well it is incredibly sad and it's the value of it though that helps us take time to look at it and 
there's a part of me that rejects wanting to even know about this. It's uh, it's horrible and is a reminder of evil. And yet Vizel, uh, as a writer, was absolutely obsessed with memory. His greatest fear was that one day humanity would forget about the Holocaust and uh, that we would whitewash it and pretend it didn't happen or change the way it happened in our collective memory to make it something that it really wasn't. And he wanted to make a mark through the written word to fight that. Uh, but that leads us to an incredibly important question historians who study the Holocaust discuss, and that is, what should we take away from the study of the Holocaust? Well, not that I know, but for starters, memory of any kind, if it's your personal memory or the collective memory of a group, it's incredibly powerful. It feels like it's a part of being human. There's so many reasons to treasure memory. For me personally, you and I, we love to travel. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that when we travel and explore together, we create memories, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. Some of my favorite memories of my children's lives come from trips that we took together. I can remember my mom, who died many years ago, but sometimes when I hear songs or eat certain foods, you know, I relive her through memory and through that love and the lessons that she taught me. Yes, uh, we can't we can't even begin to describe the importance of memory in our understanding of our orientation in the world. And you're getting closer to its greater purpose. I mean, memory serves to help us uh, extract lessons. For the present, and it helps project us or, or who we think we are in the future. And this clearly is Vizel's purpose for recording the personally uh, painful events of his life. Uh, the most painful of these will be in the chapters we read this week and next. And Saul Friedlander says that the memory of extreme events carry with them an ethical imperative, meaning survivors must. Well, another thing. As far as writers and survivors go, witnesses like Wazell or Freelander, among many of the others who have recorded horrific events, they all seem to agree that by recording these events, we have a tool for combating apathy towards human history. And it's easy to feel apathy about history, especially when we're living comfortably in the present and they feel like encyclopedia Entries Like when we talk about Kublai Khan and Julius Caesar, these were ruthless, horrific men who did terrible things, but they don't evoke any emotion. It's something else when a witness tells his or her personal story and what that means. You're exactly right. And uh, here we see why public memory, um, or especially collective memory, really matters. And Memory gives people a tool to resist destructive things sometimes, uh, things that are even natural at the present moment, and this can be very practical and helpful. Well, I understand that for historians, for us non-history people, there's another side that I want to ask. What is the point? Isn't it sometimes better just to forget about horrible things, even personal things or certainly collective things? Wouldn't Wazell have been better off to just let the past be the past, put it behind him, so to say? Sometimes isn't it better for people to do that, for cultures to just let go? I mean, Auschwitz was so horrific. It clearly is one of the greatest symbols for the capacity that man has within him to, to be evil. 
is it in memory, remembering them, that maybe we glorify them and give them a place when we really shouldn't? I know there's that cliche that those who don't know the past are repeated to doom it, but uh, is there any validity to that sort of kind of thinking? Well, the first thing I want to say about that, memory serves a very important function uh, to help you orient yourself in the world. And that's really what I feel like Bazell is trying to do. He's trying to orient the world as to what went on and what happened. And you use your memory to define who you were in the past, and you also use it to project who you're going to be in the future. And I think those are very evident in the way he's preserving memory through this book. And, and anyway, you know, as far as those... Who are not aware of the past are doomed to repeat it. Yeah, that is a cliche. Uh, and I'll concede this. Historians are really not in agreement if that cliche is even true all the time. And sometimes uh, memory creates things like feuds that go way back, tribal conflicts that, I mean, that last generations and things of that nature. So it's so difficult to understand what to do with our memories. Uh, how should we let them orient our future is not really simplistic. And we can't really understand what it means. I mean, again, back to the great Holocaust historian um, Saul Friedlander, he points out that the Nazi regime was unique among all genocides because they took it upon themselves to envision and uh, technologically construct a world through killing uh, so as to determine a, a set of criteria by which they should determine which group should be allowed to live on Earth. And Beyond that, they industrialize that whole process, and it's incredible uh, to think about. They pursued this goal with such commitment that uh, this goal became more important than winning and winning world domination. In fact, that actually reversed the normal uh, order of affairs, and world domination was the tool to annihilate, not the other way around. I mean, uh, how can we ever decide to make sense of this? So I guess what we really have is the story. In Vizel's case, I think it's clear that through his story, the goal is to prolong the memory of the tragedy, to give it a voice beyond his lifetime. He, he died just a few years ago, uh, and so have most of the victims who survived died of old age. But he writes to make future generations the storytellers of his story, Grown-up Rizal found this to be incredibly important, so important that it was worth him reliving these events over and over again. And what I find so fascinating in this short little narrative night is that it is so deliberate and purposeful. Every anecdote, every point, his style is so understated that it highlights the power in the few words that he chooses He's talked about that words are inadequate sometimes to describe what people see. And he's selective about the different episodes that he chooses and retelling his experiences at Auschwitz. There are so many things that happened. And remember, his first draft of this book had over 800 pages. But in my, we don't see that. It's just a few. There were so many people that he watched die, but he's only going to tell us about a handful. There are so many survivors, people that he encountered. Yet he only highlights one or two. And even more noticeably, he doesn't spend a lot of time honoring, if you want to put it that way, or dwelling on the perpetrators. He mentions Mengele by name. He mentions one of the capos by name. But most are anonymous. Yeah, the sparseness of how he wrote this is full of impact. And um, 
<clears throat> and this stands out because the events he relays are incredibly gut-wrenching. I mean, if he wanted to, he could have gotten a lot more gruesome. And what we know about the atrocities of uh, Dr. Mengele alone has filled volumes of history. But he doesn't do this. He mentions only that he was there. The story, and I really think this is important, does not glorify or even magnify the tragic way people died at those killing centers. This is not the story through the eyes of the perpetrators of evil. Night, although evil pervades every page of the book, isn't solely about evil. It's about resistance to evil. This is about the idea that no one, no matter how evil they are, no matter what atrocity they create, there isn't a greater atrocity than the Holocaust. But not even there can some person take away your humanity. And to me, after talking about Kafka's book, The Metamorphosis, and how people can just give it up, you know, it's a very powerful idea. What we learn in this story is that in their own way, the inmates at Auschwitz, even in their worst hour, expressed incredible personal agency. They fought back in their hearts, in their minds. And Vizel is careful to illustrate this and point this out. It's important to see this. This is especially interesting when we look at his discussion of religion. Incredibly, God, in a sense, in a real sense, dwells in Auschwitz. It's absolutely incredible how deeply spiritual this book is at times, and we're going to see that today. The theologian Rabbi Sachs speaks about his experiences talking to Holocaust survivors, and he says that there were people who lost their faith at Auschwitz, there were people who kept their faith at Auschwitz, and there were people who found faith in God at Auschwitz. Wiesel's attitude is much more confused. He interests introduces us to these three groups of people in this story, yet he doesn't tell us what we should make of all of it. He expresses divinity through humanity as he shows us what love looks like through his relationship, the sustaining relationship he has with his father. He shows us what strength looks like through Juliet and what courage looks like through the French girl at Buna, what kindness looks like by the strange men who come to the train and tell Ellie and his father to lie about their age. And he juxtaposes these divine acts with evil. From the minute Wiesel, the Wazels arrive, we see humanity. We clearly see evil and inhumanity, but we see humanity. Holocaust survivor George, George Pick says this, and I'm going to quote him. I am here because some people who were taking chances with their lives, but also others who were doing seemingly small things, gestures, opening a door, letting us out. I want to put this into your minds that you don't have to be heroic necessarily to be lifesavers or to help others. You can do small things and you would never know what the consequences of those small things are. And we see this in this book. Well, with all of that in mind, um, chapter three starts with utter confusion uh, and, and darkness and sadness. And the saddest line in the whole book is at the beginning of chapter three, uh, where he says, I walked on with my father, with the men, 
I didn't know this was the moment in time and the place where I was leaving my mother in Sephora forever. It's incredibly quick. It's overwhelming. And yet, it's immediately dismissed as they were dismissed. And of course, it is at this moment that we see an instance of incredible human compassion and agency of those there. Inmates telling them to lie about their age. Say you're 18. Say you're 40. The Wazelles had no idea. It's hard to imagine how they even viewed this enormous place known as Auschwitz. Uh, that's true. The size of Auschwitz is much bigger than we can envision by reading this book. I mean, there are 44 parallel railway tracks that convene uh, there, and that's probably why it was chosen. Uh, well, let me go back even a little before that. Um, first of all, we need to know that Auschwitz was not the only place where Nazis were exterminating Jews. Uh, There were six death camps, all of them in Poland, and these places weren't camps. They were killing centers, and the business of the camps was to manufacture death. I mean, it's set up uh, exclusively to create mass murder of human beings like an assembly line. And in these places, those who are selected out for survival are only selected out in order to support this industry that they're caught up in. And Jews were a minority in the concentration camps, but more than half of the Jews killed during the Holocaust were killed in the killing centers, not in the concentration camps. So you're making a difference between killing centers and concentration camps. Yeah, and and I make this distinction because there were other slave labor camps or concentration camps beside the death camps. And Auschwitz was actually originally a slave labor camp um, that was retrofitted to become a death camp. And what we have at Auschwitz is a massive operation beyond what any person could really ever conceive. I mean, at its peak in the summer of 1944, Auschwitz one covered 40 square kilometers in the core area and more than 40 branch camps dispersed within a radius of several hundred kilometers. And uh, in 1944, there were about uh, 135,000 people and 105,000 registered prisoners and about 30,000 unregistered that were in the Auschwitz complex, which accounted for 25% of all the people in the entire concentration camp system. Well, Ellie arrives in what we now know is Auschwitz II or Birkenau. Later, that we're going to see that he's moved to Auschwitz I and then on to Buna. So, there's the Auschwitz, the big one, and it's subdivided into these other places, Auschwitz one, two, and Buna. Right, and Auschwitz two or, or Birkenau was the largest of the more than forty camps and subcamps that made up the uh, entire uh, Auschwitz complex. And Auschwitz stands out because the scale of what went on there is beyond anything that happened at the other killing centers, and it only existed really for three years. And uh, in October of 1941, uh, it was supposed to be a camp for 125,000 prisoners of war. And it opened as a branch of Auschwitz in March 1942. And ultimately, we were, as we now know, in its final phase from 1944, it also became a place uh, where prisoners were concentrated before being transferred to slave labor camps, uh, if that was going to happen at all. But the majority, probably about 90%, the victims of Auschwitz concentration camp died in Birkenau, and the total is around one to uh, 1.2 million people. And of course, we know now that the majority, more than uh, nine out of every 10, were Jews. This is one of the few places where Vizel highlights a perpetrator, the infamous Dr. Mengele, 
the one in charge of what they called selection. Mengele held a conductor's baton and he would tell some people to go to the right and other people to go to the left. And no one really knew what that meant. In Ellie and his father's case, they were sent to the right, which ultimately meant that they were spared. But as they walked to the bunker, which they didn't know that that's where they were going, they were given a good look at what Birkenau was about in 1944. They passed a ditch And while they did, there was a truck unloading children and babies and throwing them into a bonfire. Uh, Wazell comments that he didn't think of it as being real. His father was in disbelief. They were looking at evil. And notice at this moment, Ellie references the response of the victims. Their life, their voices were in prayer. May his name be celebrated and sanctified. There's this very gripping line. Wazel says, Someone began to recite the Kaddish, the prayer for the dead. I don't know whether during the history of the Jewish people, men have ever recited Kaddish for themselves. To me, that is a really incredible moment. Men taking hold of their own sacrament of death, almost transcending death in a sense. Ellie's father was praying as well, but Ellie didn't pray. He didn't want to pray. He was angry at God. How could God be silent? How can you pray to God in the face of evil? But it's really not an easy question to answer or ask even, especially for religious people. Maybe for non-religious people, I don't know. Maybe you could say, well, it doesn't mean anything. But for theists and for Jews, devout Jews, this answer is just not sufficient. It can't explain evil, and it doesn't provide an answer for evil. Vazel and his father mentioned remembering Mrs. Schachner on the train. She must have known. She did. Um, Let's have this discussion about evil for a second. I mean, evil is really... Um, characterized by two things. First, for something to be evil, uh, there is an idea that it lacks or does not have necessity. There's no reason for it. And we feel this when it occurs. Uh, what is the point of a killing center? And and secondly, evil is voluntary. I mean, these perpetrators were not being forced. Uh, they were voluntarily digging ditches and processing inmates and industrializing uh, death. And uh, modern materialistic thought doesn't really like to think that there is such a thing uh, that this could be possible. Uh, many of us want to say that people aren't really evil. They just do bad things out of necessity, and we can wrap our brains around that. But just like it, it's not evil when a lion eats a deer, it's sad, but it's not evil. I mean, we'd like to argue that humans work like this, that if someone steals, they must have a good reason for it, and maybe they were hungry, and maybe they had some reason Uh, But what we see here in this book is not that. They go to the barber. The the SS arbitrarily hit them randomly at all times for no reason. They're forced to run everywhere, although there's no hurry. There's just no necessity in all this was going on. Well, and we like to believe that there could be an explanation because maybe in some sense it gives us hope that if we could find the explanation, then we could cure it. Like we could any disease, we can cure any qualities in the world and we wouldn't have to be afraid of evil. Maybe we can even cure evil. But it seems that Vazel and his father look around 
and they're just stunned about what you're talking about, the pointlessness of all of it. There is just no necessity. And yet so many people are volunteering to participate and you can argue that it's war and there's pressure, but that doesn't satisfy from the train conductors to the SS to the doctors, even the capos who are prisoners themselves. They are choosing evil. And then there's that iconic, infamous sign, all bait mock fray. Um, well, yes, and Ellie, like thousands of prisoners, passed the Auschwitz gate twice every day. And first time early in the morning and uh, when they were going to work, and the second time when they were coming back. And often carried by friends because of their extreme fatigue. And every morning they glance at the Arbat mocked fry. And I mean, uh, it was an insidious Nazi joke. Uh, everyone was aware every time they went under it, it could be their last time to, to pass through that gate. And work, which was said to liberate them, was in fact bringing premature death. And uh, the Auschwitz gate never led to freedom and only to pain. And the words were actually a pun. And the words Arbach mocked fry, work will free you, is really taken from the Bible, which says Warheit mocked fry, which is truth will make you free. And in uh, the early 1930s, the slogan um, Arbach Mach Fry was very popular in uh, post-World uh, War I Germany because of high unemployment levels in Germany. And it became a motto of Nazi officers who uh, forced prisoners to work in inhuman conditions. And eventually the slogan appeared over the gates of many extermination camps, not just Auschwitz. Which I find so awful. For one thing... It's almost decorative, like they did it on purpose. And then to hear you say it's a pun, a mockery of the Bible at a killing center, mocking death, mocking God, it really takes it to a whole nother level of ironic evil. And of course, it's here after going through this sign that Wazell records another instance of humanity. They had arrived at their block block 17 and their block leader gives them an admonition and he says this comrades you are now in the concentration camp Auschwitz ahead of you lies a long road paved with suffering don't lose hope you have already eluded the worst danger the selection therefore muster your strength and keep your faith we shall see the day of liberation have faith in life, a thousand times faith. By driving out despair, you will move away from death. Hell does not last forever. And now here is a prayer, or rather a piece of advice. Let there be camaraderie among you. We are all brothers and share the same fate. The same smoke hovers over all of our heads. Help each other. This is the only way to survive. And now enough of you, enough said you're tired. Listen. You are in block 17. I am responsible for keeping order here. Anyone with a complaint may come to me. That is all. Go to sleep. Two people to a bunk. Good night. Ellie says these were the first human words. Wow. And uh, Ellie is one of the lucky ones, or so he's led to understand. And he gets taken out of Birkenau and sent to Auschwitz, where he uh, just hangs out for three weeks, doing pretty much nothing but sleeping. And after which, uh, he's sent on to what we now call Auschwitz III, or Monowitz, and Ellie knew it as Buna. Ironically, and I want to read another quote, he says this, All the inmates agreed Buna is a very good camp. 
one can hold one's own here. Of course, only after being in Birkenau would you say anything is a good camp, but this seems to be somewhat true. Ellie makes friends, Juliet, Yossi, and Tibi, their brothers. And they, I find it interesting, they would hum melodies about Jerusalem together, if you can imagine that. They were given a blanket, a washbowl, a bar of soap. Their block leader named Alphonse was kind. Sometimes he smuggled in extra soup if he could come up with it. It's at Buna where Ellie meets a French girl who gave him a crust of bread right after he'd been severely beaten by one of the few perpetrators Ellie names by name, Idek the Capo. And what is even more incredible after the incident is that he tells the incident about getting beat up about the French girl giving him bread, and then he's going to flash forward to a scene later in life when he's in a metro in Paris, and he sees the girl again, and they recognize each other. They get off the train, and they talk about what happened. She had risked her life to give him that piece of bread. The Germans didn't know she was Jewish. She wasn't in there with him. She, she was blonde, and she was passing herself off as an Aryan, but she talked to him, in his language, and had they heard her talking and known, then she would have been busted. But remembering George Pick's words, he says, heroism, it's in the small thing. Sometimes we just don't even know. Well, on an interesting cultural point, uh, for Vizel, it was really shocking and troubling that the Germans, of all people, should have been the ones who implemented uh, the most savage national crime in recorded history. And they were rich, they were educated, sophisticated, artistic, um, cultured, arguably the most cultured and literate in the Western world. And uh, the way they created this industry of death was done in such an organized and sophisticated way. And they stood in courtyards and uh, counted and death was carried on with ceremony and this is highlighted by the two hangings Vizel recalls. And, uh, of course, there were many hangings, but he says no one ever weeped to watch people get hanged. And uh, they had all but gotten completely uh, comfortable with the presence of evil and death. And But he selects these two to discuss. Uh, there was one overcapo or overseer. Um, who they had caught hiding a, a significant amount of weapons, and he was fighting back, and he was hanged along with his assistant, uh, a child who had helped him. Uh, but when the child went to hang, he was so light that he wouldn't die quickly from the hanging. And uh, as was the ceremony, all the inmates had to pass the dead person hanging to remind themselves what happened to traitors. When Ellie walked past the little boy, he was still alive. He agonized over this issue. I've heard him well, I've heard him say several things about this issue of culture and evil. He raises it all of his life. It seems natural to assume, I mean we all assume that it's through education and culture that people become more humane and kind. But what Ellie sees in the camp is that there isn't a correlation between education, culture, and good and evil. We're going to see that even in his Nobel address, he just can't resolve this issue. He's going to say this. All of those doctors in law or in medicine or in theology, the German officials in the camp, all of those lovers of art and poetry, all of those admirers of Bach and Goethe, who coldly and intelligently had ordered the massacre and had participated in it, what was the meaning of their metamorphosis? How does one explain their loss of ethical, culture, religious memory? 
He further remarks in another piece that many Germans cried when listening to Mozart, when Blaine Haydn, when quoting Goethe and Schiller, but they were quite unemotional when torturing and shooting children. Even he is unemotional at this point in the camp. The last part I want to discuss today as we finish up our discussion of Ellie's time at Auschwitz, because he's not going to stay there, they're going to move him to another camp, um, has to do, again, with faith and his treatment of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So these are the two sacred high days in the Jewish calendar. Rosh Hashanah is the first of the holy high days. It's the Jewish New Year's. And in the in the northern hemisphere, anyway, it's celebrated in the fall. It commemorates the creation of the world, and it starts the seven day period. And during this time, a practicing Jew uh, will consider this a period of introspection and repentance. And all of this is going to culminate in Yom Kippur, which is another sacred holiday. They're called High Holy Days, and uh, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. Ellie expresses rage, really, as he hears everyone discuss the event of Rosh Hashanah, uh, the end of the year. The elders were praying. Ellie is angry, and uh, Ellie narrates that, and I quote, Some 10,000 men had come to participate in a solemn service, including the block testy, the capos, all bureaucrats in service of death. There is an officiating inmate who leads them in blessed be God's name. And Ellie says that thousands of lips repeated the benediction, bent over like trees in a storm. I mean, it's just incredible. I know. And I envision that in my mind, a holy day, and they're celebrating it in the camp. When Ellie is angry, he says this, and I, the former mystic, was thinking, because he's watching what all these men are doing in the camp, and he says, yes, Man is stronger, greater than God. When Adam and Eve deceived you, you chased them from paradise. When you were displeased by Noah's generation, you brought down the flood. When Sodom lost your favor, you caused the heavens to rain down fire and damnation. But look at these men whom you have betrayed, allowing them to be tortured, slaughtered, gassed, and burned. What do they do? They pray before you. They praise your name. All of creation bears witness to the greatness of God. He goes on to say, In days gone by, Rosh Hashanah had dominated my life. I knew that my sins grieved the Almighty, and I so pleaded for forgiveness. In those days, I fully believed that the salvation of the world depended on every one of my deeds, on every one of my prayers. But now, I no longer pleaded for anything. I was no longer able to lament. On the contrary, I felt very strong. I was the accuser, God the accused. My eyes had opened and I was alone, terribly alone, in a world without God, without man, without love or mercy. I was nothing but ashes now, and I felt myself to be stronger than this Almighty, to whom my life had been bound for so long. In the midst of these men, assembled for prayer, I felt like an observer, a stranger. And of course, the service ended with Kadesh, as we know, that's the prayer of the dead. And everyone recited the Kadesh for their parents for their children, for themselves. And um, the evil that Ellie saw at every moment uh, through um, billowing clouds of smoke, uh, or he felt with the blows or heard from the capos and the SS or, or smelled in the burning carcasses wasn't about need. It, there was no evolutionary competing interest, and it wasn't about ignorance or lack of sophistication. 
evil could not be explained and it could be combated through education or money. And, and although Ellie couldn't understand it or even see it, what he was witnessing were people fighting the evil and resisting the evil and not being consumed by it. And it's truly remarkable that many survivors from the Holocaust bring out the same truth of resistance that is through love and forgiveness and redemption and this connection to the divinity. But what are we to make of it? Ellie's just telling us what he saw. He can't make anything of it, it seems. Well, clearly. And of course, there's so much more tragedy and pain yet to come for him. And next week, we're going to talk about his last days at Buna. He's going to go to the hospital. They're going to be evacuated in what history has since called death marches. And then we're going to see the days when Ellie gets liberated from Buchenwald. But, But what I want to end this episode with is some of the most famous words that Ellie Wiesel ever wrote. These are from back at the beginning of chapter three, after he arrives at Birkenau. Gary, can you read these lines? Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself, never. It's written in what we call an anaphora. An anaphora is when you start every sentence with the same word or the same phrase. Now, when writers or even speakers repeat things, we repeat things that we want to emphasize. We mean it's important. We repeat the things sometimes that we want to memorize. In this case, as we look at these words, we see something repeated. He's using the same phrase, never shall I forget. That's the idea. Never forget. He will never forget. We must never forget. He's entrusting us with these images. And notice that the number seven is a sacred number. The number seven is the number of divinity. This passage is in reference to God. There's seven times it's repeated, but it's definitely a negative passage. He's not praising God like his father had done. He's not cursing God either. It's a paradox. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. He doesn't want to live as long as God. And one night, a little boy just one day before, full of life and hope, is destroyed. But yet we know that really Wazel doesn't end his life with despair. He doesn't forget. And God is not murdered. His soul isn't murdered. The power of evil can only go so far and no further. And I think there's real hope in that. I do too. Thanks for being with us today. 
Uh, thanks for joining us as we look at books that have changed the world and books that change us. If you enjoyed the podcast, uh, make sure you check us out on our How to Love Lit Podcast.com page, on our How to Love Lit Podcast Facebook and Instagram pages. Keep up with what we're doing and the developments as we look at uh, more books that change the world. Peace out. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.